it's hard to identify how we get from point A to point B at a certain point in your career, you know? you already have this wellspring of knowledge of like, oh, you know, when I was at Uchi, we used to do short ribs and we used to feed them for 72 hours. And I ran the prep team there. So I know like a lot of the background of like how times and temperatures and all these things. So that knowledge like is already inside my head. <laughs> so when you see like a piece of meat and know that it takes a long time to cook, like, okay, it's similar to brisket, you know, what are the things I can do to get it to the texture that I want? That's kind of the, I guess, the engineering of the concept. Um, outside of that, for me, I think it's more about the flavor. So it's like, of course, we want the smoke. We want the char. We want these the sweetness. Um, how do we bring those items together in harmony um, to make this dish make sense, but also to make it uh, fun for me? Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast the show where we dive deep into the culinary world, exploring the passions, inspiration, and innovations of today's top chefs. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. And today, we are broadcasting from Austin, Texas, a city renowned for its vibrant food scene. And I am moderating a panel discussion for Simrise North America at Star Chefs Austin. In this special episode, we are thrilled to be joined by an extraordinary panel of culinary masters. We have Chef Fiori Tedesco of Locadoro, Chef Philippe Speer of Comedor, Chef Fermin Nunez from Suerte and Este, Chef Amanda Turner of Olemay and the talented bartender Erin Ashford from the new bar called Holiday. Today we are going to explore a feast of topics from the rich heritage, childhood memories that have shaped the chef's approaches to cooking to the creative and innovating techniques they bring to Austin's tables. We delve into the personal journeys discuss the dynamic evolution of Austin's culinary landscape and the very rich community, and uncover their views on leadership, mentorship, and the future of food, of course. You guys talk a lot about the, you know, the Austin community, and I, I just want to understand from your point of view how you have seen you know, this community and the hospitality community evolving in Austin, and how would you, you know, define, you know, the culinary scene? I'll go. We don't, we don't hear any, we don't hear There's the no effect projection. of it happening. So it's kind of a mind trick, <laughs> but I'll go anyways. I moved here in 2011 and the first place I staged was at Uchiko when uh, Chef Philip was there. 
and that they were at sort of the the f- were you there as well? Yeah. I didn't. We didn't meet that day. Yeah, no. I, I think I was. Lost. Those I was. There's like you, three you days. Right? Yeah. 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 And I did. I did one of the weirder tastings I've put together in my life. To which, <laughs> do, do you remember that? Were you tasting? Yeah. Now we want to know. I don't. I don't want to. I'm. I'm I'll, I'll. I'll send you a menu later. <laughs> what I regard as the the. So as like a, a time capsule of the time then, I had no way into the community here. I had just moved here, meeting Philip and Paul Key in that first day here. There were a few of the first people that I that I met here, and and then stage at like four different restaurants in a in a few different days. It took me a while to find footing and to find community and to feel like. I was part of something, and I felt really important about that from the onset. Coming, I moved from New York with my family. My daughter was 18 months old, and I was pretty scared about moving to another place and what that meant. What that meant for my family, for my career, for my <laughs> mental well-being. You like, like you're conscious of all that, and to, I have a really robust community of friends and people that I worked with in New York, and so cultivating that community was sort of at the top of what I hoped to accomplish. The culture for how a community functioned then seemed like this is something that I don't know how to tap into here and seemed harder to access. And the, the ties that bound us were less transparent and harder to attain. You fast forward to now and I feel like when we have new cooks come to the restaurant, move from different cities, there is... We have formalized in many different ways, whether it's Philip's Run Run Club or my business partner and I started a a, a nonprofit for employee welfare and to support labor. Or there there are so many more formalized communities for cooks, for chefs, for people that work within hospitality and for the operators thereof to commune, to find common ground in a formal way that makes it so much less intimidating to find community. So I, I feel really grateful for that, that, uh, you know, as we've grown as a food city, I think that's the most significant growth that we've made is that our ability and desire to connect community, community is a choice, right? It's a choice to, to make an effort to be vulnerable to someone else next to you or near you or around you. And so as a city, we've decided as a community that that's really important to us. Or a few people have decided and a lot of people, there are a few people have made brave choices and then it, it encourages a lot of other people to come out of their shell and say, you know what, I want that too. So I, I feel like that that's sort of a broad overview like that, that what I've witnessed. When, when did you start Co? 12? I think so. Yeah, 2012. So, so after Fiore came in and, and staged there. But you mentioned how it feel, felt a little less attainable. What's interesting is for the 12 years previous to that, that I was working in Austin kitchens. Nobody was moving to Austin. So everyone around us, were we were already here. And so those bonds were formed and they were formed typically you know, late night at a bar and they were very, they were tight. It was a tight bond. And it, I, I can imagine that it was really hard to break into. I can imagine that I was 
completely inaccessible at that point. <laughs> and, and I know I was. And it was, it was, it was like, it was a, it was a tight knit crew and it was hard to break into, but it was because we hadn't, we hadn't really experienced people coming into our community and wanting to be a part of it. Fast forward today. Yes. Open arms. We love it. You know, and it's really, really in, encouraged, sparked and, and, and empowered the growth of the community on the culinary scene here. And now we have amazing restaurants. We have people, not only the people who were in all of these kitchens graduating or exploding to their own empires now, but we have people coming into the, to the community who, who people that are have been part of or creating concepts that we love and then establishing their new roots here. And now we embrace it and, 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 and encourage it. So, I think you're absolutely right. And, and watching that kind of unfold and being a part of it is, in to some extent, has been amazing as well. And how do you see like the, the, the culinary scene itself? You know, so you were talking about the, the community in Austin, but how would you define the, the culinary scene in Austin today? Because that has changed a lot in the past 10 years. I mean, in the past 20 plus years, it's gone from literally four or five, a handful of restaurants that were recognized even outside of Austin, much less nationally, to to dozens of restaurants, to all of these amazing chefs being on the cover of magazines or in TV shows or, you know, yes, the community and friendships are much more important. But when you see this national recognition from from the, the nominations and the, the awards and nods and all of that, it's, 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 it's amazing to see that. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's an... Ex- I see it as an exciting time to be in Austin. I moved here when what was it was 2009. I moved here from San Antonio just because I was always a little bit afraid to pursue the big stars in New York. And, you know, I, I figured an hour away can like kind of train me to, to hopefully pursue that dream. And I haven't left since. But I think one thing that's special is around that time, when I was moving, I started also meeting all these people that have worked in the New York restaurant, the Chicago and the California places that I always aspired to, to get to one day. And I saw a passion of people that were like wanting to pursue still fine cooking and like love for the craft, but also have a little bit of a backyard, a life, you know, have a, a little bit of more balance that it's hard to find in those cities. And I also think back then the people that were, in my opinion, like, showing austin the way it's done like now a lot of those those people that were in those kitchens being line cooks like now are running their own restaurants so i see it very exciting you know the i i think like bryce gilmore is one of the people that i think showed austin how to properly cook and source ingredients with thoughtful ideas and and all the delicious things that you can make from the the the, the ingredients that grow here in austin you know and i think that was really something that was really important at that time you know and 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 then uchi at the time like was showing people that like you can get attention you can make delicious food out of a tiny house kitchen and get like nationally recognized i remember the reason why i chose to come to austin was because i saw this guy on iron chef and like also like social media was different right like you actually had to turn on tv and probably pay for cable to like to like get inspired right instagram was not a thing facebook was like okay kind of kind of doing it right so like that's how you chase those things and back then like you actually had to get in the kitchen to learn some stuff right like now you can go online and like you want to learn how to butcher salmon like there's 20 different videos that give you the confidence to go and look at that fish like okay i kind of know where it's going but back then like you know it was only a little bit of a hearsay like iron chef like that was fucking cool right like nobody in texas was doing that so like it opened the door for a lot of those people that were excited about like the opportunity of like being a little bit closer to like those big scenes 
but still be in home in Texas. So you talk, you talked about the you know the local local ingredients and you know that we can find you know around Austin or in Texas. Can you mention some example of like what is the I don't want to say cornucopia, but you know compared to like California, for instance. But what are like some of the really interesting ingredients that maybe you know people that live you know like ourselves, like you know are from Texas, have maybe no idea that you can source those type of ingredients here. Okay, I'll start. One thing very interesting about Texas is strawberry season starts in January. <laughs> and they're very delicious, but it's very much a climate that is unforgiving in some ways and they're very, very plentiful in other ways. The seasons don't happen in the timeline that uh, you would expect, especially if you come from a place like California or any other place with four seasons. We really only have like two and a half seasons. And summer is one of them. Summer can be incredibly detrimental to growth. And I kind of talked about that yesterday with some of you. But we really get great peppers, tomatoes, kinds of the things that you would obviously expect, corn, things like that. But more unusual ingredients, I think, are mostly from the Mexico and African diaspora. We definitely get, you know, okra and all kinds of gourds grow really well here and can be utilized in food. Nopales, obviously, great a great thing that you can actually uh, just find randomly growing. Around here, prickly pears, more specific, there's a grape called the Mustang grape which is indigenous to this area. Its season is incredibly short, sadly, but very, very tasty. A lot of seeds inside. And mesquite pods are a very interesting ingredient, a byproduct of the mesquite tree. They're the actual like seed pods and they're incredibly flavorful, kind of like baking spice taste and can cause allergic reactions if you're allergic to mesquite. But outside of that, very tasty and underutilized ingredient. That's just a few off the top of my head. You have any? Yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, as far as like products that you're seeing in Texas, like Desert Door is one that's really interesting in the bar scene that's bringing new flavors to the agave kind of world or agave adjacent. And then to Amanda's point, for things that bars might want to use like herbs, like rosemary, things that can be hardy and withstand the heat are things that you see the most. Otherwise, you really do have to go with bigger companies if you want the consistency of herbs that might be more delicate like mint. So definitely trying to use things like that that can be year-round or can be really bright and aromatic in the seasons despite the heat. So yeah, hearty herbs for sure. And then things that are really showing like the terroir, like you're seeing a lot more Texas wine. Yeah, the Sotol for sure, Mm -hmm. which as we said, like that might be changing in the future. But in Texas, agave is so prevalent and so popular and you know, two of these chefs run restaurants that have some of the best back bars for agave lovers. So mm-hmm. you're seeing a lot of that and then therefore a lot of <laughs> flavors to kind of um, complement that as well. Okay. What about the proteins? You know, the proteins, you know, like wild Texas is a beef, and- beef country, obviously. Yeah. We have great Wagyu here. We... We at Olame source from a couple of different Wagyu purveyors, but particularly Ranger Cattle, which is right outside of Austin, does a great job with Wagyu. Yeah, Texas is really known for beef. We also have uh, great seafood that comes from the Gulf, particularly snapper is something that I think we should be very proud of because it's quite delicious. And actually, oysters have gotten uh, exceedingly better over the years. There's more and more Gulf oysters that are coming up all the time that are quite delicious and inexpensive 
Yeah, and I think my favorite fish the to come out of the Gulf is the king mackerel. Yes. Like the super versatile and not like it doesn't not sell at the price point that it eats like a very noble fish. It's like sable. It's like it is the king of fish. It's it's right, <laughs> but it's treated as uh, almost like as like a byproduct by by often by the fishermen. That's like tilefish was treated like byproduct forever. And now that's it's, right. it's, it's one of the higher dollar fish. Right. But, it, um, but it, I mean, that's also true with there's so many like uh, the things of the things that we used to flavor gulf. all of our foods or or feature like that, that fish we would feature. But then we have all these wide, beautiful. What was interesting to me coming from I grew up in upstate New York and then lived in New York City for a long time. But growing up in upstate New York, I was surrounded by ramps and nettles and like learned how to forage some mushrooms and 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 rams just growing up i grew up in a city but very near the woods in upstate new york and this climate and the 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 flora and fauna is just so wildly different but also like once you can wrap your head around it it's like it's so vast the amount of like the wild peppercorns and 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 things like herbs like papalo Mm -hmm. that just like the aromatics the aromatics that happen in a climate that is so hot means that the phenols the polyphenols in those plants to survive have to be so much more concentrated and rich so you get these so wildly intensely flavored wild herbs and grasses that you have an example of a dish that you have done with it sorry to put you on the spot The other can think about this. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I came to just because I said Pablo, I, I had a, a pasta on the menu that was, it was like an octopus, braised octopus pasta dish with fermented and dehydrated Pablo. That was like, it's a really, can be a really overpowering flavor. So what kind of profile did he give to the octopus dish? It's like, I'm really interested in things and so many dishes lack like that high note by itself. And in kitchens, you grow up like to give it a little acid or give it a little salt to like move, lift it up to celebrate it. But often herbs, aromatic herbs, and sometimes with the process of fermentation through it can help bring that high note up without adding the flavor of lemon and adding some complexity. So the Pablo gives it like this brightness and it tastes more like it's of the land and it kind of tastes extraterrestrial pulls it out into this other space you're like what is this and it makes it more like thought evocative as as a dish to me but while somehow seemed to balance it i didn't know how it balanced it pablo was kind of hard but it 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 i that dish really worked but interestingly i don't serve octopus anymore i can't do it i had a dream about octopus that i i was in a i was in a romantic (laughs) entanglement with an octopus Not, 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 not as, not far like that. Just like it was a real, like understanding of romantic love that was unspoken. And I woke up and I was like, oh, I can't eat octopus again. That's it. I feel like they should make a movie about that. Yeah. yeah. I've never seen, I've never was seen it. The it. Movie? That's it. I've never seen it. Fury and the octopus. Definitely, definitely don't watch it then. Yeah. It's a little close to home. <laughs> Some of the other, some other ingredients that weren't mentioned that I think are really exciting here. Yapon was is one for Which sure. It's uh, Yapon. It's okay. a naturally occurring uh, caffeinated leaf. Uh-huh. You know, you see things that that have really survived here that maybe aren't indigenous to to this part of the country, but do really well here. Loquat trees. Uh, we have lots of persimmons, fig. Um, we're in that fig and persimmon season now. Out of fig, kind of ending persimmon. It goes from 
yeah. astringent to overripe in a, in a day. Um, I have that on, you know, those, those ingredients on my menu now. Um, in fact, if you came to Comedor last night, you probably had a persimmon sorbet uh, with with your your pavlova, which is not a Mexican dessert, by the way. No, no, it's not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, which is like the, the the really hearty, flavorful herbs, and then the peppers, and then you know towards the end of the season, the peppers get so hot, and that's really all that survives in summer besides okra. And then, but the seasons, yeah, there's you said two and a half spring, spring half of summer yeah we have we get two springs we get great tomatoes all year round because of that but uh you can you can have multiple planting seasons of some of repeating some of the same same vegetables greens do so well for so long here uh because until recently the winters didn't get super harsh now that's a whole nother whole nother topic that we probably won't dive into and the two of you as well are bringing a lot of products from from mexico right so can you talk to us a little bit about this obviously corn yeah, so for us at the restaurant, we, I'm always inspired by like, you know, every time you travel to a country, like you realize that the people that are making the best foods are getting the ingredients that didn't come from too far away, right? And to me, it's more about understanding the cooking techniques of the region than like trying to recreate like the specific dish. And I think there's, a, there, there has to be a balance, right? I think for us at the restaurant, we use corn that is grown in Texas that we nixtamalize in house with the techniques of making a tortilla like you would in Mexico, right? Cause in Mexico, like you find a tortilla with corn that was grown in Mexico, pressed by hand, cooked to order one at a time, the way it tastes best in my opinion, right? But also like you need a little bit of those, those supporting roles that help you achieve that flavor, like the special chiles, the special crema, the special cheese that you can only source from Mexico. And like, I try to do that so many times at the restaurant where we smoked our own peppers, we pulled our own quesillo. And like, it's so cool to say that, but sometimes it just doesn't deliver on taste, right? So I try to find a balance of like, what are the basis of what I need to make sure that we're making the Mexican grandmas proud, but also, uh, highlighting that the restaurant that we have here suerte it's in austin it's in east austin it's not in mexico we're not trying to recreate something that we have in mexico i'm trying to make something that's unique to the region of where we are inspired by the techniques that i love from my favorite country you know my hometown and that's a little bit of of what i like to play with right like sourcing special ingredients like the ones that you can only get in oaxaca like We'll pay a premium on that, but then we balance it out with like the local ingredients that we have here, you know, like making a salsa with persimmon, making a salsa with fennel. It's something you might not necessarily find in Mexico, but when you have those like little, little things that help you get there, I think that's, that's super cool. And I also like one fun thing that we've experienced with as far like ingredients that are, that are local to Austin. A few, like I think last summer we experimented with making a ceviche with the, the heart of a uh, sunflower. And that was like one of those, the most exciting dishes we've done at Suerte because it, it came about like our farmer just like brought these hearts to sunflowers and we're like, what do we do with them? And our chef de cuisine, Taylor, he figured out a way that if you char the shit out of it and then you steam it and you can slice it really thin and it's almost like kind of like uh, a fish so that was a, a fun ingredient i think also like goat is something that i love that it's you know tasting me like texas and yeah just wanted to throw that in there too yeah well we we use some of the similar products that he's speaking of specifically i mean you can't you can't grow a pasiamihe here but you can source some amazing smokes Pasiamihe from Mexico. You cannot get the quesillo. We, we get the quesillo from the same, same person. He takes it to Fermin first because Fermin takes priority and then brings it to us second. <laughs> Sometimes I have to drive to McAllen for it, but it's fine. I was born, <laughs> I, I was born in McAllen. So it's cool. I get to go home. And no, I don't actually have to drive to McAllen. I just have to drive to Southwest Cargo. 
And no, no, Jose is amazing. We do source our corn from Mexico. We work with an organization called Tamoa, which sources surplus corn from small communities and small farms over Mexico. No specific region, all family, family owned farms. We pay a premium for that and that money goes back into the corn economy. So we feel good about that. Francisco and his wife do an amazing job with that, with that organization and we proudly support it. We also do the process of maximization, grinding and pressing and cooking to order as well. However, we do source our corn from Mexico. Outside of those ingredients, I mean, the philosophy remains pretty much true to we, we are in Texas. We're in central Texas. We're, we are not recreating that experience that you may get in different parts of Mexico. We're creating a spirit, an experience that you get in central Texas, specifically in Austin and downtown Austin. Um, so much goes into that. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not food. It's not always food forward. Sometimes the inspiration can come from so many different things. Let's talk about inspiration as you mentioned this. So what's your different sources of inspiration? I know Fiori is going to talk about his dreams. <laughs> I, I know uh, it's coming. I would say my I hope it's coming. Just can, can, to continue the yeah. conversation, I'll pass off. My my number one source of inspiration is eating. And it's experiencing other people's foods and other people's stories and experiences through their food and how they present or express that story. That is the number one learning tool in my box. Do you have an example of something recent that you experience, you know, tasting someone else's food? That you average? I, I, every, every time. I mean, the grabiche I had here the other night with, with it was so good that, that Chef Peter made. And it was like not in a way that I'd ever had it before. And it made me think, rethink that sauce. Fredamine's food, Joaquin's food, Fiore's food, Amanda's food. I mean, I eat at these restaurants regularly. I am, I am, I put my, my time, effort, and, and finances and resources into all of the restaurants in our community because they're that good. And we get excited and, and, and experience that. And what's funny is, Fiore, I mentioned many of us worked and come through, uh, worked in some of the same kitchens, and you see those experiences in our food. Um, even if you didn't spend five years at Uchiko, I mean, it all kind of melts together when you're in a community and you've been in the community for so long. And then you, again, like move on to creating the new concepts here. It, it all bleeds through. And it's really amazing and, and pretty exciting to experience that. So that's the number one tool in my box for inspiration. Well, so I've had the great pleasure of working at a lot of these restaurants that we keep talking about. Like I worked for Bryce. I worked for Philip. I came from the Uchi group where we were encouraged for, as just cooks to make dishes. So I definitely feel like the creative process in that way was instilled in us as quite young cooks. And it's not an opportunity that most people have in general. Usually you like have to become a chef before you get to put anything on the menu. But it was an opportunity that I personally leaned into. And I was incredibly prolific during that era. But I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Like, I had no idea. I just had these ideas and like ambitions. And I'll never forget the onion dessert that I really tried to get Philip to pass. And to this day, I think it was very good, but he wouldn't put it on the menu. <laughs> but for just me, just body language. Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh no. I was like, it's good. And he's like, it is good, but no one's going to like it. <laughs> It was a caramelized onion dessert. It was tasty. I know it was weird. I know it was weird, but it was fun. Um, this was after my fish sauce dessert failed. That's so. true. Yeah. We were a little bit traumatized at the moment. <laughs> anyway, for me, typically inspiration comes from the season first. And then 
kind of like engineering backwards from there. It's like, what tastes good right now? What's exceptional? And then how do I make this my own? I think is the other part. I have a background in Japanese cuisine and I like to use a lot of Japanese technique in my food. But right now I'm making Southern food. So they could seem kind of disparate as far as like literally across the other side of the world. But there are through lines and I think ways to like bring things together. Y'all got to try the beef belly yesterday. I think that dish is very representative of like using different technique to bring something fresh. It, it is like a send up to Texas barbecue, but it's totally a send up to yakimono and Japanese culture. So I think that in that way, kind of marrying influences and working with the season and working with the local ingredients is where uh, so, it starts. So if we, we talk about that dish, and obviously you had access to that piece of uh, meat, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not uh, the noble piece of meat, but oh, it's, yeah, they, you they know, usually it's a hard one to work grind with. It up. Yeah. So, yeah, so you said the source of come from the produce or the product. So you have that piece of meat. So when you have that piece of meat, how do you put things together in your mind to say, this is what I'm going to treat that piece of meat. I'm going to add that techniques coming that I know from my experience from working at a Japanese restaurant. From outsiders like you know us how mm. how that games <laughs> you know game happened that's a your, good question yeah you know i think that it's hard to identify how we get from point a to point b at a certain point in your career you know you already have this wellspring of knowledge of like oh you know when i was at uchi we used to do short ribs and we used to feed them for 72 hours and i ran the prep team there so i know like a lot of the background of like how times and temperatures and all these things. So that knowledge like is already inside my head. (laughs) So when you see like a piece of meat and know that it takes a long time to cook, like, okay, it's similar to brisket, you know, what are the things I can do to get it to the texture that I want? That's kind of the, I guess, the engineering of the concept. Um, Outside of that, for me, I think it's more about the flavor. So it's like, of course, we want the smoke. We want the char. We want these, the sweetness. Um, how do we bring those items together in harmony um, to make this dish make sense, but also to make it uh, fun for me? Because ultimately, it has to be fun for me or as going off the menu. <laughs> I feel like for inspiration, I definitely agree with Philip. Experiencing other people's drinks or dishes is what inspires me. And I feel like even more so through travel, I think regionally, like we've talked about trends and kind of things we're doing kind of runs through the community. So for the bar world, I mean, going to New York or Mexico, like getting to see the way people do things is a huge inspiration. I went to Mexico five years ago on a tour with Fortaleza and had a Paloma where the guy just had a cooler with a big block of ice, a glass. He shaved some ice off, threw it in there, put a big chunk of salt poured the tequila and then just topped it with squirt soda and it's the best Paloma I've ever had and it was so simple and then you know then on the airplane you're drinking little airplane bottles of tequila and squirt so I'm like okay our Paloma has to be squirt soda like it just has to it's the best one and it feels like the truest to the form which is important to me and where I get a lot of inspiration is like tradition like for me instead like does this honor you know the Mexican grandmothers like I think about that a lot of like okay I'm going to do a variation on a martini like does this honor the first people who ever made martinis like is this kind of the new way to look at 
a timeless classic and make it my own. Like I feel inspired by that of like, how can it be still true to the form, but something new. So from a cocktail standpoint, do you look at, you know, like the spirits that you want to celebrate and then you start from the spirits and then you see what goes with it? Or do you have, you know, for some other cocktails, the idea of here's the final concept and then that's, you know, what I want to reach in terms of the entire picture of, you know, the drink and then you are, you know, going backwards and then trying to... Oh, yeah. I go... Every which way. Sometimes it's like, oh, I thought of a really good name and I feel like it'd be good for a gin cocktail. Or sometimes it's like, okay, I had this drink at Death & Co. in Colorado and I know it was bourbon and avocado, but I don't know what else was in it. And I'm like chasing that flavor so hard because it was one of the best drinks I've had. Like, how can I mimic that flavor when I have no idea what it is? So it's sometimes it's a particular ingredient like I love the Yopan Gin from Treaty Oak. I want to put that in a cocktail and highlight that. Or the menu needs a new rum drink because I don't like the one on the menu. It's not fun for me anymore. I need to replace it. This is a business decision. Or this isn't selling. We need something new. So it can work from so many angles, you know, and sometimes they're inspired and creative and sometimes they're business decisions. And so I think the starting and ending point is sometimes hard to know. Kind of like Amanda said, it's kind of like out of necessity at times, or it can be, you know, really inspired and drawn from your experience and what you want to see. I would like to hear it from you from the perspective of behind the bar, but I I would like to hear it as well from the chef. It's the collaboration between the bar and the kitchen. And how do you leverage, you know, ingredients from the kitchen into your, you know, in your drinks creation and maybe from the chef, if you have some examples of like the, you know, the reverse with working with your, you know, bartenders. Yeah. I mean, for me, my experience is they are such a wealth of knowledge of like the way they know the seasons and the things that are coming is so far ahead of the way I would know. I'm just in a different world back there with a lot more shelf stable products. So that's a big part of it is having this encyclopedia of knowledge in front of me of these chefs that know what's fresh, what's coming, the way they use it, which can be similar flavor wise of, you know, like grapefruit and rosemary. That's delicious together or pears and vanilla, like different things that, you know, are kind of unanimous and everyone knows, but then seeing the way they utilize it or the innovation in the kitchen is just so different from a technical standpoint. And that can be inspiring in too. Way? Um, definitely. I mean, just the equipment they use can be much more advanced than what you would have behind a typical bar and the way they can change ingredients with that equipment is, you know, super important for innovation. And then, you know, calling on them for that skill level of like, okay, so I wanted to do those pepper curls. You know, I learned that from a chef. I would have never seen that if I was just in a bar, you know, a dive bar or a cocktail bar. It's like just being able to see it hands-on, I think is an important part. Do you think it's it's even more important now where the trend of like the the non-alcoholic you know, cocktails, it becomes oh, absolutely. more and more, you know. Yeah, to uh, be more innovative, to use ingredients for sure, where it's not just, you know, a juice and a soda. For sure, to do things like, you know, adding vinegar or shrubs or different things to non-alcoholic drinks or spirit-free drinks to where it's like its own cocktail now. Definitely a lot of that comes from the kitchen since it's not okay. Have you ever heard use any byproduct from, from the kitchen? Definitely. I know you just opened like in March. But. Uh, yeah, we were using the olive brine for a little while for our martinis and mm-hmm. doing 
that in the dirty martinis. That's an easy one. Obviously, if they're going to serve marinated olives, we can have the brine. We certainly try to utilize any trim they use from citrus and things like that. Yeah, anything that's like the byproduct that is in a liquid form is always the easiest. But like yeah. pork scrap, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> pork scrap martini. You already know dreams about on that it. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's dreaming about it. <laughs> so from a chef standpoint, do you have some examples of, you know, working with the people in the restaurants, you know, in your restaurants behind the bar in terms of collaboration, working with, you know, ingredients from the kitchen? Anything you want to? I think for me, more than ingredients, is like understanding the structure of what it takes to build a perfect cocktail and like take that into the kitchen in a way that like bring a little bit of that structure in there, right? I think the one thing I've learned from from our bar team, it's like they have to pack so much flavor into very little amount of something that's going to go into the drink and also understand like ice is also just an ingredient of the cocktail because it dilutes, right? And like understanding all those flavor profiles and and how to like pack a lot of flavor into really small amount, that's the biggest thing that I've uh, you have an example? No, oh, God, like anytime they make a syrup, like you just try it on their own. It's like, whoa. And then you have it in a cocktail. It's like, okay, that makes sense, right? Like similar things like that, like an infusing spirits with like chiles, which is something that they love doing at the bar. And like understanding like how much and how long time you have to like let that go for. Like that's some of the things that I've also like keep that in my back pocket when I'm thinking of something to create in the kitchen. When we opened Locadoro in the the year leading up to, I I'd spent a lot of that year the creative R and D part of that. I spent a lot of that time creating Amaro recipes, and so when we opened, we we opened with like three or four Amaro on the recipe that we make totally in house. We've refined that process over the years, and Eva, who is our bar manager or beverage director, rather. Well, I work really closely with her on developing those and furthering the, the techniques for that. The, the Making the Amaro is really technical and also super subjective. And so we're talking about part when, of it when is you like, say subjective. Uh, subjective by like, why is there, why are you putting another gram of quassia bark in that? And what is that, what are the qualities as a bittering agent does that quassia bark have versus the kinkona versus the gentian versus uh, or versus like i made a i i may all of a sudden I, i'll go forage and i'll bring back beauty berries and i'll bring back the leaves from the beauty berries i'll ferment the beauty berry leaves and find that they're they have a bittering agent that's similar to some other things that are foreign and i'm like well i want to make a new amaro out of this i want to make a spirit out of this so it's a conversation between her and i of like i'm often thinking about the ingredient and finding round use for it it's not always it doesn't always make sense on the plate as but a lot of these things will make more sense as to make a spirit or to make it tomorrow make make a spirit or or as part of a cocktail so i don't want to leave the source of inspiration topic without the dream aspect because every time we have the chance to talk together it's they always have a source of inspiration coming from one of your dreams. Yeah, I the way I get I mean, I I echo a lot of what I hear from you guys and a lot of like every time I experience something that one of you or a lot of the other pe- talented people in our community like it furthers that inspiration. I guess where it goes for me 
is maybe a little less direct. Like I, I meditate a lot. And the thing that makes me feel okay about sort of getting through the day is like finding a way to be more present, right? So I meditate to be more present and by as a byproduct, I have a lot of like visual experiences and I have a lot of really, a really rich dream life. And so I wake up with a lot of ideas often and it's often, and so when I'm thinking about putting dishes together, I'll start from the concept of like, well, okay, I had this dream about, I had a dream about this, uh, there's like, there's a cow in, and it was in the orchard and there's the grass, the sky was blood red, right? And, and so, but what I'll see is, well, there is this, um, it was, those colors were there. That color, that color scheme existed somewhere at some point in, in this world, whether in my dream life or somewhere else. So I want to find that, that is a real thing. And there's something magical to that. So I want to give, I want to bring life to that magic that I experienced from that dream. Or it might be like, I, I, I made a dish that had, had a lot of meaning to me when I was, I was just weeding in, in my garden with my daughter. We, I grow sage, we have a beautyberry bush next to it and we have a pecan tree that grows right above it, right? And as I was, it was a beautiful day and my senses were more alive because I was just with my, I was, I was with my daughter and we were having a really beautiful time together. So I was just like, I, I could smell things more. I could experience it a little more. I was really present for that moment. And it was a, a moment of extreme joy. And so those, I was just stuck with the, 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 the visual and the smell of the, the pecan, the sage and the beauty buried together. They don't live, that doesn't sound like a delicious pasta dish, right? <laughs> but what I made necessarily, but I, I, I was obsessed with finding a way into that. And so I made a, a pasta, I made like a rigatoni, I made a, like a pecan butter, and then I pickled the beauty berries in a really sort of winter spice clove and cinnamon aromatic that brings this really savory pickled note to the, the beauty berry and then dried the sage that, uh, that became part of the sauce for that pasta. And so, so it was this pecan butter, beauty berry and sage pasta that is one of the most delicious dishes I've ever made. And one of the most inspired and also carries a lot of meaning to me because I, I was really carrying, part of it was just carrying that joy, distilling like real moments of truth and joy in my life and carrying that with dignity into my work. I mean, there's, you know, I, I love the, always the conversations, you know, with the chef in Austin and, and with Fiori. So, I mean, I, I give you, you know, the book that I've written and there's one part of the chapter talking about inspiration. And there's one part of that chapter, which is around source of inspiration coming from dreams. And this is a story that, you know, led to your series of dishes based on the records, like the music, you know, with Nell Young and, you know, that's, you were dreaming about. Do you, you want know? me to repeat that? Yeah, it's a great story. I so love it. I, uh, it was, and you know, f that was a, a moment in time that Fermin and I shared together as well, which was really nice. I was working at Franklin Barbecue at the time, and I was really, really underslept because I was working like the, the overnight shifts. So I'd, and I had a toddler. So I'd work from something like go into work at one in the morning, finish at 11, couldn't really sleep. I had to sleep. <laughs> At some point, but I was with my 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 wife was in grad school with with my daughter until she went to sleep. It'd be like eight o'clock. Eight o'clock, I'd get her to bed. I'd go to bed, get back up at midnight. So I was sleeping like three hours a night. So I was just nuts, right? <laughs> um, 
uh, and then I was also, I was like, I've been, I'm like in the barbecue pits every night thinking like, what am I going to do with my life? What? And at some point it was like Easter Sunday and I just finished and I just wanted to take a shower to wash the smoke scent off of me before I went on an Easter egg hunt with my daughter. And I was just like, kind of like nodding out in the shower. It's just like, oh, I got to wake up. And I was like, oh man, I wish I was on the beach. And I was like, oh, that reminds me of that Neil Young album and song on the beach. And then my mind started to wander and I was like, well, my favorite beach was this beach called 40 Steps Beach in like Nahant, Massachusetts, that my, where my cousins lived growing up. And I got a visual of that beach. And then I was thinking, man, man like I, was, I, had, I could hear the Neil Young music in my head and I could picture the beach and I was imagining this dish. I was imagining like, oh, I could make like this, uh, like, like cockles could be the rocks on the beach and I'm gonna, I can make this like scallop tower and I could have this like uni on the, like I was imagining the composition of this dish and I was like, well, I wanna make that. And I was like, well, it'd be great if I made that. It would be true to this experience, this moment, if I had Neil Young as a soundtrack. So what if I made uh, a dinner that was all Neil Young? I was like, well, what if one course was that album on the beach, then another course was Harvest, and make a, a pasta dish, right? You know, we and then un, and and then I extrapolated that out, and I was like, okay. Within by the end of the day, I was late to the Easter egg hunt, <laughs> uh, but I came. I made like four, like just wrote out a quick like four bands. Like each course is an album for these four bands and this is the start of a dinner series and went back to work went to Aaron Franklin and was like hey can I do this and he was like well, sure so he gave me the dining room to start using it like every Sunday and so I called for me and said could you help me could you help me with my dinner series and we had we had worked together before and no uh, I mean where does it mean that <laughs> that's all the process and for me and helped me make some of those literal dreams come true with that dinner series. That dinner series was the how I met my business partner. It was featured as well in in media, right? I remember. Yeah, it got it got some stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was a lot of time. It was a really beautiful time to be like freely creating. Uh, sure. Yeah. So for you, Fermin, and you, Philip, and you, Fiori, does it become easier or more difficult to be creative with experience? I don't want to say age, but with experience. Actually, Fermin is the youngest person here. <laughs> <laughs> you are? That's on facts. <laughs> okay. Sure, I'll start. Uh, how about the most uh, experienced? The oldest. I said so the does, it become, does creation become more difficult with oh, more easier. experience or easier? Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's 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 kind of a, a, a tale of two, right? Like you, I become more creative with limitations. And as I get older, I feel like there are more of those presented to me. And then when you have those limitations and you think of ways to kind of work arounds, right? Or, or you know, you, you, you need to work within these parameters. And once you figure that out, you're like, okay, but here's a way I can kind of sneak past that. And I think, you know, as you, as you get older, it, I've, I have worked with so many different types of cuisines. I have been a pastry chef. I've been a savory chef, I guess. I don't, <laughs> right. That's, that's not how we look at it, but I know that that's, that, uh, that is how, probably how you, how, how many of you look at it, or I assume so. 
forgive me for the assumptions. And I feel like those limitations have allowed me, whether it's in a specific cuisine, a specific style of cooking, maybe I'm baking or creating a dessert or, or creating an, a, an entree or, or, or someone thinks I need to create a raw fish dish because I worked at a raw fish restaurant for 11 years. And I can, I can do that. That kind of limitation of where I am supposed to be in that moment usually put on me and allows me to be creative outside of that. So I think having this kind of these different experiences, maybe someone looks at what I do or what they think I do and has this expectation of what I should create, but the experiences allow me to create outside of that because I have, have such varied experiences and I have, I mean, I feel like I have a pretty big bag of tricks. So both, right? Does that make sense? No, you didn't like yeah, that. Yeah, no, 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 it's, no, it's fine. I was looking if anyone wanted to add, <laughs> like, you know, anything. I'm still offended that you're calling us old. <laughs> uh, I've embraced it. Yeah. What's that? I've embraced it. Uh, I, you've, yeah, I have not. Yeah. I've not. I'm, I'm struggling. I have no choice. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I feel freer than ever to create, right? In that I feel like what I have found is like stress and anxiety are the enemies of creativity for me. It's where I, and creativity for me is mostly is more about building more vibrant community in in my teams like in interconnective pathways between the people that i i work with that i interact with and what the potential outcomes might be and imagining a wider scope of what those outcomes could be is like really the i feel like uh, the most fun use of my creativity now like creating new dishes great like i could do it all day long it's it's super fun but I, I think the stress and anxiety get in the way of imagining new possibilities and you put up walls for yourself. So I focus a lot of my time on trying to find ways to eradicate unneeded stress, unneeded anxiety to be a healthier version of myself. So I feel really proud to be like in a like a, of a healthier mindset so I can be a better contributor. But I, I also feel like, wow, I have a lot of ideas when I'm when I'm taking care of myself. But is your process of creativity evolved because now you have more responsibility, you have like several restaurants. So I'm guessing you are not as close as the creative process that when you started, you know, years back. And now this is more about managing, leading teams, collaborating, you know, with others, correct? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's, as far as creating, is it's gotten easier because I develop a little bit more of knowing what I want and crave in, in food as opposed to when I started cooking. I feel, and I see this with a lot of the young people that I have, or not necessarily young in age, but just not a lot of experience in, in, in creating dishes. I see everybody just trying to put dishes that are for themselves in a way that can just show you how many things they can do on a plate. Versus now I know what I want because of the things that I enjoy eating myself and I don't have to have a pickle, a texture thing, a, a something crunchy, something hot, something cold. Like now I just know what I fucking want and I want to, and I want to do that. And, and the, the process of, it's funny because like now I get to do that the least of, of that, right? Like I have to manage people. I, I, I'm packed with meetings with the leaders that run the restaurant on a day to day more than I'm actually in front of a cutting board nowadays. But it's, it's, it's translating that creativity, that way of, of having the common sense that I have. If I was doing it on the day to day, that it's another way for me to, to express that creativity. And also like 
I'm lucky enough to get invited to cook at different cities or like, you know, go on trips. Like not, it's, it's not just about me anymore. It's about bringing those people that are making the bigger impact on the day to day than myself, because, you know, I can't be at everywhere all at once. So how do you do that? How do you transmit this idea that you have, you know, to the rest of the team? Do you have any, like, what's your process of doing that? I mean, we, we every, little things, right? I think uh, we do a, a yearly trip from the restaurant where we take a uh, few key people, not even just managers, but the ones that have been, like, having a, a good impact on the restaurant are probably going to be the next people that are, are starting to manage. I take them to Mexico to the places that have inspired the restaurants. And, and it kind of, like, it shines a light on, like, I can only tell you so many times that the tostadas needs to be dried out and perfectly thin because that's the way it tastes best because that's like the the way I believe that tostadas are the best because I've had them in Mexico. It's so different when you actually taste it and see it over there than just for me and telling you over and over again because that, that's annoying, right? And also like for them to understand like we need to have this many cucumbers on the aguachile and then they go see the aguachile in Mexico and they're like, oh, okay, now I know you're not just being annoying. Like this is where it comes from, right? And, and, and it's more about that than just me creating, you know, in the perfect world. Like I would just have a restaurant that seats 30 people and cook the food that I, I, I want to make now. But I also like the balance that the restaurants give me to in my personal life to be with my family or to even my partner. So I don't know, man, this is like a therapy session for me now. But yeah, this is that's a little bit of like where I'm at in, in the world okay. of creativity. Okay. How how are the the restaurant doing? Like you know, Suerte and Este. I mean, restaurants are do they're doing good. I mean, there's always things that are moving. There's a lot of things that are never going to be perfect. But overall, I think we're we're doing good as a restaurant, business wise, but also like taking care of the people that are that are doing it on the day to day. You know doesn't make it easy doesn't make it super smooth but it's about how you face those challenges on a day-to-day you know like today like we have so many people called out i'm gonna be running a private event at bartotti and 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 that's where i'm excited to be at in in my career where i'm not necessarily relied upon on the day-to-day or on the schedule but i can be the guy that saves the day and looks super cool doing it you know <laughs> so it's it's a little bit of that that's that's a little bit more my role and i enjoy it so did the being in food and wine, it was what, 2022 for you? Change a lot of things for you? That had an impact in the way that a lot of more people started reaching out. But I also, the biggest advice that they gave me in that, in that room before they announced us was learn the power of no and understanding what you want to do with this. And, and now that you're in this catalog of like, People are going to start reaching out to you more and, and, and I get to do a lot more things that I want to, not just because I feel like I have to. And obviously it brought a lot of, a lot of not just people to the restaurant, but it brings, I think the biggest thing from that come out of those uh, awards is the people that want to pursue working with you more than the actual award itself or like, yeah, a busy restaurant is great. But if you don't have people that are helping you maintain this award and maintain the standard, then it's, it's kind of like worthless and, and you're not going to be able to keep that for so long. Right. Mm-hmm. So that to me is the biggest thing that comes from those awards is the people that are excited and interested. Cause I was that guy looking at those magazines, trying to figure out who I was going to work for. Right. Trying to figure out who was an iron chef and I wanted to get in that kitchen. Right. And, and now that I have the microphone, I take that with a lot of uh, respect, you know, and, 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 and honor. So I try to also be there for those people. Okay. So what's next? What's next? Rest. I don't know. For me, it's just making sure that we maintain everything that, that we've been able to do and not sacrificing the present, 
And that's one of the questions that in my, like, people always want to know what's next. And it's like, and I don't know why, but like, to me, it's like, let's just figure it out as, as we're going. Swords has been open for six years in March and SS1. Like, it took us a good amount of time. And, and, and I think that was the right way to do it rather than chasing something new just because the iron was hot. You know, it's, I, I think that's when, to me, it matters the most when, when you follow your own guidelines and your own rules. That's where the magic is rather than just like pursuing something because you are hot right now. Mm -hmm. So where, where are you going to bring your um, team to Mexico next? We always do it Mexico City because there's a lot of, it's easy to get there. There's a lot of restaurants that re like uh, inspired us to do what we do. We usually do that trip in January because it's a little bit slow and we keep it between six to eight people tops and that's that's what we do and, and then for the managers that have been there for a long time that have been to that mexico trip we we give them a stipend and we tell them like hey go to mexico you'll get reimbursed the only thing you have to do is not go to a resort town and come back and write an essay about your experience and then you get you get the money back for that and and that's the way to like keep everybody still yeah. engaged any recommendations so evan and uh, brigitte here from and myself we are there next week in Mexico City or Mexico, just Mexico? Mexico City. Mexico City right now, my favorite spot. I was just there for Thanksgiving with my family, not not work. But I had a beautiful breakfast. Mexico is like different than breakfast, right? Like we don't, eggs are kind of like a, a, a thing, but you can eat breakfast at 1 p.m. So I, it's like more of a lunch. That's a little bit more of the food that I crave right now, which is like simple, a great sauce, great tortillas, a little bit of protein, right? And I think one of the things that I excite me the most about Mexican cooking and you know, sorry for this, but I think the French sauce work has nothing against Mexican sauce work. It's, it's, it's so exciting. <laughs> and Comalo Culto does a great way of highlighting the possibilities that you yeah. can do with sauces in, in Mexican yeah. cooking. You and I had a conversation with oh, mother yeah. sauces. I remember. Yeah. Yes. So the one that we really liked, one of our recent trip to Mexico City was Masala y Maiz. That was really, you know, interesting with a confusion combo with you know, the Indian aspect and then African and then, you know, and, and Mexican. So that's, that's something that we like. Kumala Kulto, I think, I think okay, love. Kumala Kulto. I was there for uh, like, I think four, three days and I went there every single morning. Wow. Was that good? Yeah. That good. Okay. Very good. Let's talk about, you know, the, we were talking about leadership. So I'm guessing, you know, a lot of you are, you know, managing teams. So how do you approach you know, like the management part of the, of your team and what style of leadership do you, do you, I mean, use or leverage? Yeah. So I don't own a restaurant and everyone else here owns a business. I have been a CDC now for seven or eight years, going on eight years. So I've had the opportunity to manage a lot of different teams. For me, autonomy is the most important thing that I allow my cooks to have. I feel like coming up cooking, there was definitely a little bit of a stigma around having autonomy. It was very much like, you know, this is the way we do it. Don't ask questions. This is just the way. I'm a very analytical person and I needed information and it wasn't always available to me. So I feel like in my leadership style, I want to offer people something that maybe wasn't as obvious back then, which is the opportunity to fail and the opportunity to make decisions that maybe aren't going to be the best. But it's really easy for me to tell you how to do something. But people take it a lot more seriously when they have failed because of the decisions that they made. And then it's like, okay, great. Well, now I can come in and show you and you'll actually respect that 
I know what is going on here. And it, I think it's definitely a time investment. I am really fortunate to have a team now that has been with me for the entirety, basically, of the time since we reopened Olme in 2021. And I took over. In my previous teams, I've had a really good history of keeping people around for a long time. But, you know, I think the autonomy is a huge part of that because there is an opportunity for growth in ways that I don't know you always get. And we very much like to have fun as well. My entire line now knows how to do the Cupid Shuffle. And it's a team building activity. And it's really great to just, you know, have I, I'm a, I'm a very uh, adamant music fan, and instead of like having quiet downtime, we do the opposite. Basically, the entire hour of four o'clock until we open, I just play bangers, and everyone sings, and everyone dances, and it's actually really energetic. And I feel like carrying that energy into service is really important, but also having the outlet to express yourself in a different way that's not necessarily the job that we're here to do builds a certain kind of camaraderie. So I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that. For, for those of you that don't know, we sing the Pokemon song every day. <laughs> Aaron was a part of that as well. But it's just very much like, I, I think giving people the opportunity to be a car- part of something that is fun, but it's also like unique to us. So. And it's, it's very interesting listening to you because with a lot of chefs that I have talked to, there's obviously, um, you know, before the idea that if you start at the restaurant, this is the vision of like the chef, and then it's like more yes chef, and then you have to execute whatever is the vision of you know the lady chef or the executive chef of the place, and then you go maybe after two years, whatever or three, you go to another place, you do the same thing, and maybe after you know seven or eight years then you have your own place and then this is where you can start like expressing yourself so totally it's a big different like in terms like pictures that you are drawing now compared to a lot of other places that you know i've, I've been in- involved with or engaged with in conversations well i'll say michael who also is a star chef recipient and he's cooking tonight for us i'm very excited about this michael footage the chef owner of olme when he approached me about taking the job as a chef de cuisine, I had just told him, I need a lot of autonomy. And he said, you got it. And he has done that for me. So I like to do that for other people. I do feel like in this moment and with this platform that I have, he's really given me the opportunity to express my cuisine and my ethos. And we agree on a lot of things. And it's not the way that he would do it or has done it, but he has a lot of... singing the Pokemon song? I'm sorry? He's not singing the Pokemon song? He does sometimes, yeah. He does. (laughs) I mean, he's much like, you know, for me or a Fiore, you know, multi-businesses. So he's not always around, but he very much enjoys that we have this culture and we do these things. And I think the most important part about that is that everyone believes in it, you know? There was one time that someone turned off the Pokemon song when it was playing. That was bad. That was really bad. Aaron was there. <laughs> so do you think the culture is changing like in, in restaurants towards that type of what Amanda is describing today? Do you think that's... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, 
I mean, hospi- we're a hospitality business and that is it's humans. It's people. That's, you can't offer a good experience without having a good experience. I don't believe at least not a genuine or authentic one. So the people have to come first. And that those are the people that open the restaurant and close the restaurant and operate the restaurant and every single post from the front door to, to the bar, to the tables, to the line, to the dish pit, to the, whatever it may be. It's every piece is as equal as equally as important as, as, as the first piece. So, if you're not taking care of your people, you, in a sense, can't offer a business that take care, takes care of anyone else. Therefore, you fail at hospitality. And that is a major culture shift that I think is many people are realizing today. You know, as far as the experience goes, I've, I'm, I know many of these people work in that old, have worked in that old school mentality. I as well, you as well. And I have made it a priority to shift that, that thinking and, and what that culture looks like personally. And, and, and hopefully that translates to my staff. If I feel like it does, I, 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 I'm open to the feedback today, whereas I may not have been 10, 15 years ago. And that feedback's necessary. So, so listening, um, a certain amount of vulnerability in that. And that vulnerability includes sharing. You don't, no one is going to open up to you if you don't open up to them. There used to be absolutely forbidden in a kitchen or in a restaurant, but specifically in a kitchen to have any kind of vulnerability, to listen, to question. And now it's encouraged in my kitchens and in my restaurant. And I, I, yeah, I'm not behind the cutting board as much, but I sit at table 64 and have conversations with my staff all day long because I've made myself accessible. Now, has that become difficult in some situations? Absolutely. But it's necessary and it's something that I've had to learn to manage and navigate as well. Offering different kinds of programming or incentives outside of the traditional programming incentives. You know, I think that's important. I think that has helped change the culture. Everything from shift drinks to, to continuing education trips. That, that's a huge part of the continuing education, like real life, actual experience. So th- there's many, many things that I, I could speak on it for a really long time. I think Fiore has done amazing work in that with Good Work Austin. You know, Comodora is the, the headquarters for Ben's Friends, which is a nonprofit that based in Charleston that's in 22 cities now, which is a coalition for sober food and beverage professionals. We're also the, the birthplace of the Commodore Run Club, which is, no, it, which is the first hospitality-based run club in the U.S. Now there are many across the country. We started that almost five years ago, and we have had not only a lot of fun doing it, but I think it's created a lot of camaraderie community, sure. which attend- leads into retention and, and mm-hmm. happier people, healthier food on the table, healthier mm-hmm. family meals, more water being drink, drunk, <laughs> drink, excuse yeah. me. And uh, all of that matters and all of that, all of that plays. So if you're not thinking about this, you know, when you talk about sustainability, sure. if you're not talking about thinking about or acting upon the sustainability of each other mm-hmm. and your teams as individual human beings and then coming together to create a product, then you're not giving the holistic view yeah. that you need. It's interesting to hear that, you know, this is something that now trickle down into the hospitality industry because what you are describing is really like the value of any kind of leader, any kind of, you know, manager, like, you know, all of us that are in those positions is you need to build like that trust relationship with, you know, you and the rest of your team. And, you know, this idea of being vulnerable and, you know, recognizing when, recognizing when, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong and, and so recognizing, you know, other people's value. It's something that it's key in order to, you know, put together, you know, like a healthy balance, you know, team and for, let's say the long run. So it's, it's really interesting to hear that. 
um, you know, from you guys because the hospitality has been a little bit lacking. You know, when you look like in like 10 years back, uh, you couldn't see really that. And uh, I, I really applaud you guys to, uh, you know, to have put some system in place, you know, here, especially in Austin, you know, that, that celebrate that. Well, I know the four of us spe specifically, I'm sorry, Aaron, because we haven't personally worked together, but we have, I have seen each one of these chefs and they have seen me on both sides of that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's incredible to see the freedom that has come from the other side of it. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll say also that the industry changing from and uh, especially from those of us that are like leaders in our perspective businesses like like we absolutely have to there's no, it's not a choice we're not making a choice like you know let's run like a regressive like really fucking mean like let's gaslight the employees we'll get them to be here for five years trust me it's gonna work like, make them sign a contract like, right the, yeah. like the the system of hospitality that has really an ugly history by way of like abject brutality and disenfranchisement of minorities and of women throughout its history doesn't work it doesn't work anymore it doesn't work for the people that inhabit the, the those spaces and 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 it uh, doesn't correlate with the values that any of us have uh so running the system like i you know the growing up in some of the the hotels and fine dining restaurants that i grew up in as great as they might be the the systems that they had in place did not celebrate everyone equally right a lot of people were left wondering why it wasn't their turn and they had a right to wonder and a lot of people were leaving the industry wondering why they felt like shit every day and why no one was being honest with them or taking care of them we were we also each of us, all five of us, hire people all the time. And and our job is to connect with those people. And just as a as a source of necessity, like the, the the younger generation of people that are often working for us would not respond to that. In fact, it's it's sometimes really interesting and difficult to come up with the cues of what they are interested in, what kind of leadership they need, what they want, and how what examples they will follow. There is a more non-linear path of adulthood, of careerdom that is celebrated and available than what I grew up with, mm -hmm. right? That that what we grew up with, and we have to respond to that as we have to respond to that as employers of like, how do we fit into offering that path? How flexible can we? Oh, you 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 want to be here? You just want to be here two days a week? Well, if you're talented and you offer something to us, can we be creative and thoughtful about how to make that work? Mm -hmm. Often the answer now is yes. Well, if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, are you fucking nuts? Right. Like, right. How do I, how do, how can I offer that? How can I be a good employer to somebody that's there two days a week? And what I would say to that younger self is figure it out, be a better leader, be a better manager. If you if you want to connect with people, you have to meet them halfway. And it's our responsibility as leaders to uh, forge pathways that bring more people, a more diverse class of people of different different generations, different different ethnicities, to bring into the hospitality and industry where they feel welcome, where they feel seen, and where there's more possibility for them. And so that that it, it creates a it necessitates us being breaking down the walls of what the systems have been and being more creative about what the possibilities could be. Okay, so I know we are soon to uh, the closing of the conversation, but I I want to make sure that I 
open the floor for questions. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, have a question, but I've just really enjoyed uh, the time. I come from the restaurant world many years ago. I think I started 45 years ago. So as a young person, owned a restaurant, higher end, uh, and it's just fascinating to hear you talk about how you approach leadership today. Um, because I came up in a world where you described just do it All right. Um, and walked away with that same mindset. And now that I'm in the corporate world, and I've been in the corporate world for quite some time, but I, I started out at Campbell Soup. And I it soon became apparent that, oh my God, I need to change my ways. <laughs> it was foreign to me, the corporate world. But I find today, fast forwarding, the challenge is, how do you manage and lead, not the not a team in general, but it's almost like you have to challenge, manage, and lead each individual. Yes. Oh. And it never ends. <laughs> I'm exhausted. 100%. Yeah. No, but, Same. It, but it's become a fun challenge because you're in a position now uh, where you're responsible for people. And uh, I'll tell you, back in the day, I really didn't give a shit about people, right? It was that mindset. It's like, I'm doing my job. You better be doing your job. But uh, I've learned and I'm, it's so exciting to hear you guys talk about how you've learned as well um, through your journey because I think most of you have touched a little bit of that old system. So, I'm so happy to hear that it's changing. I know there's still a lot of it, certainly in big cities, New York. Um, I did a little stint there. Um, but yeah, no questions. Just fa mm -hmm. fascinating. This has been really fun for what? How long? Hour and a half. Yeah. So I appreciate you guys spending the time um, out of your busy days. Uh, so. Thanks. Thanks for sharing your experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really cool because what do I do now? So I'm with Simrise. My my position is director of culinary applications. And so we, we deal mostly in, you know, flavors and seasonings. And what we do is we create the concepts, same concepts that our customers would use. So that when we develop seasonings and flavors, we know they work when, when we send those things out. So still a lot of hands-on, still a lot of fun, still inspirational. And trips like this for me and eating your food is inspirational too, because I get to go back and download and go, God, I just saw the coolest thing. And it helps us keep up with, with what's going on out there. So thanks. Thank you. Anything? Thanks. I mean, he already said it, but thank you guys for coming in and doing this. It's really great to hear kind of all your stories. I'm kind of interested when you're talking about like the community that you guys have created here, which is, I think, awesome. And it's cool to see that that whole thing has changed a little bit in the food industry. Do you feel like it's got any easier to retain the talent? Do you think it's any different? Like, do you feel like having that kind of feel towards those people and really creating that culture is creating a better environment for them and actually keeping them around a little bit more? Or do you still feel like it's hard to get new people in? It's hard to keep them. They always want to go somewhere. And I guess even when they do go somewhere, it sounds like you guys are really more supportive. It's like you're pushing them out to go do anything rather than they're leaving to go do anything. So like just how is that whole back and forth happening today and, and you guys were talking a lot about 
managing those people has gotten a lot different and you're really managing directly to those people? Do you feel like just the general like want to be in food industry is different than it used to be? It's like six questions. Just like, start wherever uh, you want. Yeah, that's tough. Well, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I'll very briefly, just since we opened this year, we started hiring and seeking people out eight months before we opened and then seeing it was going to take longer, you know, we hired people or said, okay, we want you to be a server or bartender. We'll let you know when we're opening. And then here's this weird limbo period, hoping they stick around for this vision that I sold them on that they have no idea what it's really going to be. Okay. Now the people stuck around, they're here. Now I have to curate that management to them to be so personalized of like, this is each person. I'm making time for each person. This is what they want and need. So it's like very specialized. Okay, now they're bought in. They're here, but it's been six months. We had a brutal summer. They're not making money. Now they're going to leave, right? So it's like you're seeing some people who stayed because they're bought in or because they're getting by, but... Austin, there's so many new places. It's You're not the shiny, bright thing after six months. It's like, now we know what this is. It's not for me. Or I need something more, something different. Or I gained this experience in my career. Now I'm going to go gain more experience somewhere else, which is totally fair. But so I think it is hard of like, why are people sticking around? And you want to hope it's because of your vision and what you built. But sometimes it's practical and financial. So we've seen a little bit of all of it, I would say. Are as many people attracted to the restaurant and food and beverage hospitality profession today as were before? No, absolutely not. So when you do, are you when you're able to acquire that those build that team, the importance of retention is paramount. I mean, it's 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 the biggest piece because with that retention, then you have staff that then can bring the others in. And, you know, as Aaron said, like the buy-in or, or just the wanting to be at work, it, it, it comes from the people around you. It doesn't just come from the one leader, right? However, I think that we live in a little bit of a bubble, you know, it, a lot of the, the, you know, there's this echelon or this, this small percentage of restaurants that is on this like progressive move and change of what the culture should or can be. And for some of us is out of, as Fiore said, no choice, but still many, many, many of the restaurants operate in that way. So that's why I think the attraction to the business is much lower than it used to be because the, br- the brutal reality is out, like the secret's out, right? Mm-hmm. Secret's been out for a while. So, but even, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, when, when it was like, nobody wants to work anymore. Nobody's going to work. Nobody's keeping their jobs. Like, I didn't feel that. Uh, we had a, we had a great staff. We still have that great staff. Was there some attrition? Of course. Was it some of it financially? Financially? Yes. Was some of it because maybe it just wasn't a fit? But I think overall, by and large, our staff remained and they remained happy. So yes, absolutely. The community aspect keeps, keeps that team whole. And then when you have the integrity of that, it attracts other people. You know, we've, I've had staff go f- from restaurant to restaurant and it's, uh, it's always like, Oh, how was it over there? And even come back. Right. And it's, it's, it's always, again, we're like this small percentage where it's going pretty well for us, but I think it's, we, we get a little caught in the bubble sometimes and it's not like that everywhere. So yes. And yes. I would say if- particularly that the pandemic was incredibly impactful on our industry and it's taken some time to recover. It's like the middle section of available 
cooks and would-be chefs just disappeared. So what we're seeing now are people that are incredibly overqualified or incredibly underqualified. So really taking people from ground zero and teaching them how to hold a knife, how to brunoise shallots, you know, that's really where we're finding our, our investment is paying off. But unfortunately, because of the history of this this industry, we lost a lot of great talent that could have done a lot more. And I think about it often as like, it is our jobs to provide people with opportunity to get to a place where we are. And I always want any person that has ever worked for me to be able to achieve the things that I have achieved. And it shouldn't have to be going through, you know, microaggressions or abuse to get to that point. You know, it should be like any other career that you have the skills, you gain the skills over time, and then you can step into that position. And I think Theo kind of touched on that. It's like, we want people to know that they can reach this position at some point in their careers if they push for it, you know? And it doesn't have to be at the hands of like a, a whip. <laughs> right. A lot of it, a lot of it's around just transparency, right? Transparency <laughs> seems like it's like it's so much easier than it, than the application of it is, is, but we try to, in, in terms of creating systems for advancement, for example, by way of retention. So the more transparent we've made our, our, our policies. So if this, then this, if this, then this, if this, then this, you will, you will receive these raises at these intervals. Plus there's the potential for more based on your performance. Right. And let's quantify that. Let's talk about what that is like very, very open, like coming up with the, the, the criterion for that. I kind of hated it because I, I kind of like, I'm like, I don't, I don't like spelling this out. I like there being a little bit of like, I want you to figure it out. But what I found is my dismay for the process was kind of unfounded that all the mystique is still there. And it, what help, what helps people is just to know that there's, that they have a shot, progress. right? Yeah. That there's a shot for progress and, and a big, like a, a thing that I take a lot of pride in is every time we hire someone as a cook who is not a cook before. Mm -hmm. When we hire someone that like, uh, we'll put out uh, an ad and get, you know, one application or 400 applications, depending on what the, the job was for, for a cook and somebody will apply and they've been uh, packing boxes for UPS for the last two years. And I try to meet with anybody that seems like they're really engaged and really interested in this. If you, if you put forth, if you send me a message that seem that makes me feel like you're trying to connect, then I'm going to try it. Then I'm let's, let's do it. Let's bring you in. Let's interview you. If you make it past there, and if you get through a stage and it seems like you have a shot at contributing something that we've made a pathway for, which is different from when I opened Locodoro seven years ago, you had to be a really good cook to survive on a station. Now we've created a pathway that you can support, you can learn, and you're still going to be paid like a grown up uh, to do that. And that's the other part of it. It's like in another time is like you're a stagiaire, like you, you don't know what you're doing. You don't get paid. Well, that's not professionalism, right? Like we're, this is a professional industry. We, even if we are not getting the immediate return on that person, if we say we want to hire you because we believe in you on what you will have, you will offer, we are still paying for that now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so offering competitive wages, even if the skills aren't there at the time, hiring people because we believe in them as people and offering them pathways of advancement. 
it has helped and still it's a fucking mystery still people will leave like at employees will break your heart you'll think something and they'll do something else they will say something and do something else at the end of the day you embrace all outcomes like if you are doing it if we are doing if we're doing that if we set it up the way that we believe that that i can go to sleep at night being like i did the best i could to be the best boss i could and to set this up for them i accept all the outcomes right Thing, things are going to surprise me weird shit's going to happen but there's going to be a lot of joy to be had as well right well in all that you think that that's a mixture i mean you guys talked about that was over a long time period right like you've been on both sides of that exact type of thing happening so do you think part of that is you lived it before and you didn't want to live that for the people that came up under you part of that's the pandemic part of that's the culture of austin part of like did all those things together or do you think there's a big one in all of that that kind of like drove it all and the other things you kind of helped along again working alongside kitchens i definitely had experiences being in pre-shift and you know, chef calls you out and you can tell he's going to be so mad if you get the answer wrong to what's in the dish or you walk in the kitchen and you make noise in the ice machine and you're like, oh, the glare I'm getting right now. So I feel like chef and I both have to have tried to, you know, still put those standards and the things we care about that are important onto staff, right? Of like, there's a reason we don't slam the ice door. You know, it is important to know the allergies. Those things don't go away, but the way we present it, I think is so different and so important. And for me, it definitely comes from a personal, you know, having felt that like makes me want to be a protector of these people and show them in a way that's such so much more empathetic and caring in a way that everyone deserves because, you know, I'm a ball of nerves and anxiety and I'm an introvert. Like, yeah, standing up in pre-shift is scary. Being called on by a teacher or your boss is scary. Like, I don't want people to feel that way, you know? So it's important to me to be more of a vulnerable, empathetic leader. So is it linked as well of the culture of Austin or, you know, that size, let's say, of, you know, city? Because... The dynamic that I hear here, really is not here anymore, but I hear the same type of conversation when I go to Nashville, for instance. I, I feel exactly the same dynamic in terms of the community that I you know, hear from you guys talking. Completely different when I'm in New York or in San Francisco. I, I hear the same vibe as well, you know, coming from Portland, you know, for instance. So, so is it as well connected to, you know? I mean, I think for me, it, it, it kind of goes back to what I said when I started. Like, when I moved to Austin, I started meeting a lot of people that had come from the big cities to pursue a balance in their life and still be able to do what they love, right? And and I think you see that in other cities, too, like like Nashville, right? Like, people are moving to those cities to not lose a part of who they are professionally, but also, most importantly, not lose who they are as a person. Because I, I think that's, you know, that's important. I'm I'm... I'm Fermin first and then chef, you know, and I think if, if I can pass that on to the people that are working with me, that's important. And, and I think it's harder to find that in big cities. I, I know there's restaurants that are doing it like that in the big cities, but there's still restaurants that are not doing it. So, right. I'm, I'm just going to contribute with as much as I can with what I can. And restaurants are hard. You know, working in restaurants is hard. So I also think like people are looking more for than just a paycheck. So you have to deliver on all those things because without people, the restaurants don't work. Okay. It's 
2.15. So I just want to give your time back as well. Or when at least you can have. So thank you very much, you know, for um, joining us, you know, to uh, for the, this panel. Thank you for the time. I hope everyone enjoy the conversation. Um, and yeah, we'll hope to continue and come back to Austin very often and enjoy your food or your drinks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. What an incredible journey we had today in Austin, exploring the depth of culinary creativity and passion with our esteemed panelists. It was a panel that I moderated for Simrise North America at Rising Star Star Chefs in Austin. A heartfelt thank you to Chef Fiorite Desco, Chef Fermin Younes, Chef Philippe Speer, Chef Amata Turner, and the bartender Erin Ashford for sharing their insights, experiences, and vision with us. For our listeners, we hope this episode has been as enriching for you as it has been for us. Whether you are a food enthusiast, an inspiring chef, or simply someone who appreciates the art of cooking, there is a wealth of wisdom and inspiration to be gleaned from today's discussion. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to share it with fellow food lovers and culinary dreamers. Spread the flavors of inspiration and let's keep the conversation going. Remember to follow us on any platform where you listen to podcasts. You can as well subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com for more delicious content and tune in next week for another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast where we continue to explore the world through its taste and tales. Until then, keep savoring the flavor of life. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.